Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I am your host, Leslie Lee III. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jack Allison. How's it going, buddy? Oh, pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, excited to do this uh, What We're Reading episode, a slightly more literary struggle session yes, yes. Uh, than we've done in the past. Well, we've done several books, actually. I think That's it, true, I think actually. It, you know, we've got to get back to Jerusalem, to be honest with you. I'm oh, yeah, kind of itching to read more Jerusalem. Yeah, we're going to be keeping up with the Jerusalem. Probably, let's do it next week. Like, let, let that be our bonus next week. Besides, cool. of course, we are working on it. The Force Awakens commentary with the one and only Mr. Skill Scal, highest artist of quarantine, Bugmane. That's right. You know, as elusive for scheduling a podcast episode as he is, you know, in life and in the wild, we will be getting you that long promised, long awaited struggle session Force Awakens commentary. You know, Leslie, I haven't seen this movie in a number of years. So um, in some ways, it's a, it's a nightmare to even uh, think <laughs> about doing that. <laughs> I feel like it's our duty, you know, as mm -hmm. scholars, you know. I kind of wonder how I'm going to feel about you it. Can't, as the critic cannot look away. You know right. what I'm saying? I, I feel like I wonder I'm going to, you know, it was so much It was so much more hurtful, I think, when it came out and everyone liked it. But now in the aftermath of, you know, Rise of the Skywalker and they're basically not making Star Wars movies anymore, like, I feel like it might be a different watch knowing, uh, you know, how much they completely and utterly admitted defeat, you know, like just a few years after that movie came out. So interested to see how uh, this one's going to feel. Yeah, but that's for next week's show. Let's get to this week. Jack, where are you reading? I've been doing a lot of reading lately and a lot of like uh, sort of crime mystery kind of reading. One of the big thing I got into, I think we talked about this before on the show, um, is I picked up just a, you know, the the two full volumes of Sherlock Holmes by uh, he's a sir. He's been knighted. Uh, sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And these are really fun. They really are. This is like the original, you know, Marvel or DC. This is what folks would like go to the book shop and want to read the next serialized adventure of um, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, they're great in the way you expect in the fact that they're, you know, just like really solid, tight little mysteries. But there's also kind of fun elements in there. Like, you know, kind of the way, you know, people probably know that all the Sherlock Holmes stories are from the perspective of Watson. They're in a first person perspective. And he kind of hides character development in there in a way that's very interesting, where it's like, we're not told explicitly that Watson kind kind of has troubles, but he also gets married in an early book and then just is quietly divorced later in the series. And we kind of allude to the fact that he's got gambling issues by like one time randomly, he's like, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes keeps all my money like locked in a drawer for me. <laughs> um, like there's kind of just fun little like, oh, Watson's kind of a fuck up, uh, like hidden stuff. And Watson doesn't tell you directly because it's from his perspective. Um but yeah, the stories are really great. The novels are good. The short stories are good. There's a really funny one, you know, kind of, I think, early. Because um, so much of these, like, part of the fun is, like, you know, this is from the perspective of, like, 
in an Englander in the late 1800s. So there's one early on where like they get a letter and they're like agonizing over what the initials KKK could mean. They're like, it's a letter like from, you know, uh, the, the from line is like from the KKK. And they're like, what in the world could the KKK mean? And the, re- the reveal in the mystery is they're like, did you know there's an organization in the United States called the Ku Klux Klan and they go by the KKK? This is not a person's initials. Watson, it's this group. Did you know the villain of the first Sherlock Holmes novel is the Mormon Church and Brigham Young? Uh, we cut away halfway through and like start following the Mormons, and they're very much like just the straight up evil villains of the story. The uh, the early um, American Mormons. Rob, uh, the Sherlock Holmes books were probably. The first like adult ish books I read as a kid, I think yeah. I went straight from Encyclopedia Brown, sure, in like elementary school to Sherlock Holmes in middle school, and I got a real kick out of them. I really now really... In, in the middle school editions, did, does does Sherlock Holmes do as much cocaine? Uh, because he definitely is a cokehead in the like unabridged edition. No, no, no. There's no like I I've, I've never saw any like abridged editions of Sherlock. They were just no, no. He 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 was he was getting zooted. In the books, yeah, he, uh, there was no yeah. shame in his his game at all. Does Robert Downey Jr. even do cocaine in the in, in his version? I think they kind of make him like frazzled, and I I can't remember. I haven't watched the the Missed adaptations recently, but yes, if obviously. you're going to cast Robert Downey Jr., forgot. I think they allude, but yeah, he should have he should have been actually doing it on set. You know, yes. he should have done it on camera. <laughs> but yeah, I used I love those books, and I actually went back. I think after I. Uh, couple years after college and reread all of them again and absolutely loved them they're just fantastic stories and really good and you know the first procedurals kind of Mm -hmm. and that's why this forum that's why there's still like five law and orders on tv you know there's Mm -hmm. something just pat about like someone does a crime they get they get caught there's a mystery behind it some smart guy solves it and you know puts on the cuffs there's something very satisfying about that on an emotional level and we should mention i think i've mentioned this on the show before this is actually the invention invention of the detective. Detectives did not exist in the <laughs> real world, right? Uh, like they did in Charlotte. No, no, no. The fiction created the world yeah. that you know the 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 image of that good cop, that intelligent mm-hmm. cop. And by the way, Holmes is not a cop. Holmes yes, is very specifically not. not a cop. He works with the police, but he is hilariously just an amateur criminologist. He's like just some guy who's into crime and that they like go to sometimes for help, but he does it on his own. There are a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories where he like decides that morally he doesn't think the person should be turned yes. into the police and like keeps it a secret between him and Watson. Yes, several cases. So it's like even these early stories, like the first, you know, detective procedural stories, uh, were say kind of saying fuck the police still. <laughs> like they were kind of useless. Well, I mean, they're also. I mean, they say fuck the police in the sense that it's like Lestrade is a dumbass. They're yeah. like, uh, like when Lestrade comes around, he always has like the wrong inclination and is like suspecting the wrong person, and he's a dumbass, and he's also super cocky and like you know dismissive of Holmes, and Holmes is of course always a genius. Now. Does Holmes make some like pretty big uh, deduction jumps in there? Yes, he certainly does sometimes, but that's fun. It's fiction. We're having a good yeah, time. Yeah, that's that's why you get that's part of the fun of writing the story. You get you get to m- mess with all the parts. You get to 
make yeah. the universe and you get to make Sherlock Holmes as smart as you want him to be. And I do think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle does a good job of making him feel smart, which uh, and which a lot of writers who are writing intelligent characters, even Sherlock versions of Sherlock Holmes, don't always accomplish. So there's a big I read an article kind of about, you know, actually about how there's this like there's these missing Sherlock Holmes manuscripts from Arthur Conan Doyle. And they are kind of like a Sherlock Holmes mystery unto themselves because like they no one knows where they are and they like were going to be released at one point. But did you know? That there's like a big battle between the various like Sherlock Holmes fandoms like going back decades in England because one fandom likes to talk about Arthur Conan Doyle and the other fandom likes to treat Sherlock as though he was a real man and doesn't <laughs> like to acknowledge that Arthur Conan Doyle existed. So that's what goes on in uh, Sherlock fandom. I have heard this before. I have heard this before. I, re I remember this. I remember like... um. I actually think maybe even when I first first read it, I like when I was a kid, I was a little confused because it's it's told in the style where it's like you're reading a newspaper sometimes, or like it's like it has like it's like, it's like letters from Holmes, yeah, kind of, like they or from Watson. They're like very, you know, it's like kind of that H.G. Wells style where it's like you know they're like papers. Yeah, so I remember for a second being like, wait a minute, is this motherfucker real or not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I said in the first book, it's like the villains are the Mormons, so you're, I could see being confused by that and being like, hmm, wait a second, like. Brigham Young is real. What about Sherlock yeah. Holmes? Yeah, because up until that point, like the only stories you're reading are about like, you know, mushroom kingdoms and stuff like that. <laughs> like, okay, that I feel like is not real, but Sherlock Holmes like does exist in the real world. Well, speaking of um, works of classic serialized fiction, I've been getting really into Robert E. Howard's Conan series. Oh, you know, I've always loved the movie, Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. I never stopped thinking about that movie. Uh, John Milius absolutely blows it away. Um, Basil Polidorus on the score. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Barbarian. It's a perfect fucking movie. All right. Absolutely love it. But the stories themselves are very different. And mm -hmm. But they capture so much of what you, I love about the movie. Like you get a sense that the world that they exist in is really big and really old, almost, you know, like um, Lord of the Rings type style. And they do this with, you know, very sparse storytelling like uh, Conan. He just goes into like this empty cave, this cave where this king used to live. And it's like he finds the skeleton and the sword. And it's like, what is it? I think it's the Aquilonian sword. And you, so you know that, oh, this is the location of this ancient kingdom that has fallen decades and decades and dec decades ago. Kind of the storytelling that you see in a, a Dark Souls game and what have you. And well, let me tell you, Robert E. Howard, when you let him have that pen, he is able to create a world that is just so huge and so old and so interesting, like a huge fantasy world that I think easily like rivals, if not eclipses, you know, all the stuff that's going on hmm. in Lord of the Rings. I've, and it's surprising to me that more people don't go back and actually read Conan because I think the stories, even though they do have the old school colonialist view, lots of racism, lots of talk of the dark races and the Hey, look, there's some of that in Holmes, for sure. Well, of course, of course, of course. But what, if you look past it, which you, I believe you can, you, um, you get some really great, fun, uh, 
uh, action stories and they're really fun, but they're also like poignant and funny and sad. And Conan is just a very, very interesting character, much more interesting, even though Arnold did a great job in the film, like the, the character is like a lot smarter, a lot more intelligent, a lot more in the books. And I, I have a, I have a real blast uh, reading them. I highly recommend anyone check them out. And if you don't have the patience for the books, Kurt Busiak did a great uh, mm. adaptation series in Dark Horse. They took the uh, short stories like line for line and adapted them to a very beautiful comic. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, that sounds like it's a fun read. I might have to check those out, actually. Continuing the crime thing, I've been reading a lot of James Elroy, and I found out, you know, that the that James Elroy has been doing these cycles that include, you know, the Black Dahlia and L.A. Confidential, one movie that's beloved, one that is not so beloved and deservedly so. Um, uh, but, you know, these are all part of like a big shared universe um, that started with what was called the L.A. Quartet and then continued into um, what was called the American tr Crime uh, Underworld Trilogy, the American Underworld Trilogy. And now he's currently writing the second L.A. Quartet and so I ended up doing this a little bit out of order, just based on recommendations that people had given me. So first I read American Tabloid, which is a great um, sort of history of, you know, the Bay of Pigs and the Kennedy assassination that takes as fact a lot of the sort of more kooky conspiracy theories about it so it probably is an accurate history to be honest with you it's probably an accurate history uh, but it has a lot of great characters the classic pete bondurant who's like a former police officer who just kills people with his bare hands um and then i read i read you know also out of order the first of the second L.A. Quartet, which is still currently being released, called Perfidia, uh, which takes place in the sort of early days of World War II uh, following the Pearl Harbor attack in Los Angeles and just is like this sort of fever dream of, uh, of you know, patriotism and, you know, the, the war being drummed up and anti-Japanese racism. One of them is this one character is this brilliant um, Japanese like forensic, um, you know, like evidenceologist or whatever. I can't remember the term right now, um, uh, but that's a great book. It's a little bit longer. Um, and now I've gone back and read the original Black Dahlia. I've decided I'm going to go back and read, you know, um, all of the, you know, L.A. Quartet, the American Underworld trilogy. And then I'll read the uh, new books in the second L.A. Quartet as they come out. Um, these are great, just hard boiled, you know, novels. They have some great characters. His prose is so wild. Um, you know, he uses probably the accurate amount of racial slurs uh, for the time period. So, you know, you have to be kind of aware that that's going to be something that's in the book. But, you know, that is probably what all these fellas were talking about, talking like um, in World <laughs> War in World War Two and like the 40s and everything. One thing I thought is so funny is like, and I feel like this is probably an accurate portrayal, is in the in Perfidia, you, you have all these white, you know, Americans and, you know, there's a lot more like 
which side should we join in World War Two? You know, eventually the, the you know the the Japanese attack, and they're like, well, we have to go to war against the Japanese. But early on, they're like, well, you know, Hitler is fighting the Reds, and like, you know, someone's got to do something about the Jews. And I'm like, yeah, that probably is fucking how people were talking, how cops were talking back in like the 1940s and the early uh, stages of World War Two. Um, but yeah, those books are you know they're great crime books, and uh, I'm having a lot of fun with them and Elroy is an absolutely kooky man and uh, that's something you know that we that we sometimes love in our authors well on that crime beat I have to mention once again Walter Mosley who covers Mm, you know a lot of the same stuff that James Elroy does but from a black and by the way Mm. Marxist perspective hey now there we go. People don't know. Like, he is a committed Marxist. That's why you don't see... I think that's part of the reason why, like, even though he's written, like, you know, 60-something books, and, like, they're really popular, you've only seen a handful of adaptations of his works because... Sure. I, so I, think it's a, I, think, I think that's a problem for Hollywood that he's, like, yeah. every book he mentions Karl Marx specifically uh, because of this. That's awesome. I should check them out. That sounds cool. You can start with Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, which is has an a- excellent uh, adaptation uh, starring Denzel Washington, which starts with a uh, Easy Rollins, who's like a you know private detective uh, in 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 Watts in Los Angeles, and starting in the 1940s. And but he's got a ton of books where he goes through a ton of adventures, even moving into like the seventies and, you know, the hippie area and the fucking uh, Manson, you know, era. Like it's a, I absolutely love his storytelling. It really sucks you in his prose. Like you said, I like the, I like how these crime writers write. Like they all really, I love the hard boil uh, style. Yeah, I like the sort of Spartan prose, the, you know, just quick moving. It's really a lot of fun. You know, uh, speaking on, you know, even the Manson era, I read and I actually kind of didn't even have that high hopes for this, but I just had it sitting around and I was like meaning to read it for a while. I read Quentin Tarantino's adaptation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I got to tell you what, Leslie, I really did enjoy it, actually. I think Quentin actually does do some interesting stuff in this novel um, and not to spoil too much, but you know, I think that this is an actually an interesting selling point for it is that you start reading this book and you're like, okay, I'm reading this story, but like, I know how it's going to end. You know what I mean? I saw the movie. I know it's going to end with this shootout at the guy's house and the Manson family coming in. Quentin Tarantino throws away that moment in like the first third of the book really weirdly like he's talking about other stuff and then he's like later that year like the Manson kids would invade his home and then like they would like Rick you know uh, uh, and then Cliff Booths would like kill cl- kill them all and then like go on to do other stuff the book ends not in a different way, not in a way that like contradicts the movie, but at a different point. Um, and it's like more of an emotional beat. And I really found it quite good, actually. It's very different than it's got a lot of different moments than the movie had. And, um, you know, it, it is this kind of fun meditation on Hollywood of the era. And, you know, um, and, and also like it gives Quentin Tarantino a lot of, you know, license to kind of do his film dork stuff in there. Like there's a lot of moments in the book where he's just 
just like talking about like you know uh like kurosawa movies and stuff like that because cliff booth is like a He's movie Patrick fan Bateman, yeah. kind of yeah <laughs> he does do it in there um and yeah i i found myself really enjoying it it was a very brisk read you know and i i, I feel like i got through this one in like one day and was pleasantly surprised at how much i enjoyed it sick sick and speaking of some brisk brisk read but one that has to be on your list. I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. I just, so it's a post-apocalyptic tale. I know you've heard it before. I know you're already rolling your, rolling your eyes, but this one is not one that's about, you know, outdated post 9-11 politics. It's not an attempt to make some uplifting bullshit in the face of impending climate change. This one is like about right now, which is, rare in a book where you see a fiction book where they're writing about the current moment maybe you know the the current decade sure the current presidential administration but when you're reading this book you're seeing people you know act out these conversations and issues that people are having right now today uh centering on uh gender and you know the oppression mm. of trans people lgbtq people and this book takes place in a world where uh, every single uh, person with a, a certain level of testosterone is turned into a murderous, raging, uh, teeth-filled, cancerous, eldritch-type carpenter-like monster. So that's what every single, wow. uh, any other person with a certain level of testosterone. And it follows these trans women who have to hunt the men for their testicles because that's how huh. they can get their hormones. But that's only the beginning of the, oh, that sounds that's great. only the, the premise. That's only the beginning of the book. I feel like so many people focus on the premise, but this book is actually huge. It's actually big and takes wow. place over a, a long period of time. It actually reminds me the most of like a post, if like John Carpenter, was going to do some post-apocalyptic stuff with, you know, extremely political, but in a way that's like not, you know, cloying. It's very smart. It gives you the perspective of the villains who are, by the way, terse. And it gives a realistic <laughs> perspective of their way of thinking. It's just incredibly well-written. Gretchen Felker Marden does an amazing uh, job with this, her debut uh, novel. I absolutely love this book. I cannot recommend it uh, enough. That sounds awesome. That kicks ass. I'll have to check it out. You know, another one I read recently that I really enjoyed, actually, this is like the throwback. And if we're kind of talking about like, uh, as far as like good politics books, um, I, I was recommended John Steinbeck's um, In Dubious Battle, which is a great little like short novel about a pair of Marxist organizers, you know, going down to a sort of uh, apple pickers strike in sort of depression era you know, uh, uh, America. Could you believe it? You know, John Steinbeck writing <laughs> something set in sort of the 1930s Depression era. Um, but what I really like about this book is number one, it's a thriller. It's a thriller, you know, about a uh, labor, you know, a labor movement uh, organizing and a strike happening. Uh, but one thing that's really nice about it that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, even echoes 
true to today um, is that the organizers know from the very beginning, like we're told very early on in the book that he's like, we're not going to win this one. And what it's really about is like teaching these men how to strike and sort of continuing the never ending battle, you know, of, you know, the left versus capital. And that like, hopefully this, you know, will uh, this movement will like inspire other people and teach these men how to strike so that they can do this more in the future and everything like that. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was a really, it's a really nice book. It was written so long ago and still feels like so relevant, um, at, you know, to, to movements today. Um, another, you know, I, I really enjoyed the prose of it. I think that, uh, Steinbeck's prose is really Spartan and clean, uh, and really appealing. Uh, I had a great time reading it. It's kind of about, you know, solidarity and how you absolutely positively cannot, under any circumstances, trust a counter-revolutionary. And of course, I'm talking about the sci-fi epic novel, The Three-Body Problem. And I was surprised by how much it felt like a light novel. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not really like a hardcore sci-fi book. The first book especially is almost like Sword Art yeah. Online or something like that. Half of it is about like a video game that only mm -hmm. turbo nerds can play, which is which should have been a red <laughs> pairing in the first place. Like a video game that like only if you have a PhD can you actually progress to the next level. <laughs> but it turns out that this video game is actually part of some alien invasion um, where they're trying mm -hmm. to drive all of humanity's scientists uh, insane by through this video game in order to prevent them from creating technology that can that might stop this impending invasion now that's not a huge spoiler but that's the first book but there's two more books i haven't read read that yet but i really liked how it got there but it took a while to you know explain the plot but when it gets yeah. there it's like oh shit that's pretty cool actually yeah, I've read all three of these books and uh, I like them all. I, I do think the first book is the kind of, you know, slowest read. It like kind of gets to the main idea. It unfolds it in a very like strange way, but not in an unenjoyable way. Like I did kind of enjoy, you know, even all the sort of goings on until that moment. Uh, I will say, Leslie, I hope you keep reading the series because uh, there's some really interesting ideas, uh, especially one big idea in the second book. Um, and the third book just goes fucking hard, in my opinion. And the third book just like goes all the way. Um, and I don't really want to spoil anything about it, but it just like it it really fucking goes yeah. there <laughs> like it really explores the idea kind of out as far as it can go and like and leaves no stone unturned and the series like just fucking goes hard it really does That's by the end and you know it might even be hard to where this series ends up and like how it ends up what what, what the where the, the turns it takes and the things that happen are so insane for a series that is kind of sword art online <laughs> in the like in the first book yeah that is, i'm i'm excited for that because the, the first book kind of feels like issue zero 
like an issue zero comic, yeah. just kind of setting up the pre-conflict that you need before the actual conflict starts. Now, I must warn you, book two, and it's early in book two, it's like an early part of book two, has an extremely stupid and embarrassing part. So just fucking get <laughs> over it. There's a really, really stupid part that, that is like pretty annoying. And like, I think you'll know what I'm talking about when you read it. But it's just life. You know, we got to we got to allow Cixin Liu to do some weirdo shit, I guess, sometimes. All right. And I want to mention a sci-fi book with absolutely no fat on it. Very, very short, uh, in fact. Uh, but it's a another high-concept one by our boy Peter Watts, writer of Blind Sight, who is, which is, you know, a, absolutely amazing book. Jack, did you read that one with me? I read it. I don't know it. No, no, no I we did, I did we did an episode on it, but it's a, it's a really cool. I don't think I was you know, on that dystopic uh, future where you know we've brought back vampires. It, it's and it takes place in outer space. It's super. It's like Event Horizon, uh, but like hard oh, sci-fi. It's really cool. But he put out an even cooler one, uh, even more like high concept one, where it's following this crew of this ship um, in the far far future. And they're on this ship building these gates that humanity is going to teleport uh, around when they in their expansion around the universe. So they're going in like a loop around the universe, building these gates. Now, of course, this takes, you know, millions and millions of years. So the crew only wakes up for a few hours at a time. And at a certain point, they decide they don't want to be on this endless mission that's taking them absolutely far into into the future where humanity may no longer exist. And so they try to mm. uh, start a mutiny on board while only being awake, you know, once or twice every few hundred uh, years. Like, it's a really fun, it's, it's not that long a book, but it's really high concept, really tightly paced. I highly uh, recommend checking it out if you want just like a quick uh, high concept sci-fi read. Well, I did read a great nonfiction um, that, you know, I think is uh, probably well worth reading if you're like pretty exhausted with online and maybe wonder why uh, you're so exhausted with online. But um, Johan Hari wrote a book called um, uh, Stolen Focus, which is really all about like not only, you know, what has happened with our focus and if you feel like you can't have any focus anymore and aren't able to like focus on anything because of all this social media, it's it's not so much a help self-help book as it is, you know, a an examination of how these apps were all like designed specifically to addict us in this way. Um and, you know, uh the problem with Joe and Hari books, he wrote another great one about antidepressants that I really like. Um, his, you know, sort of solution at the end of the book or, you know, sort of prescription typically is, you know, that we need to live in a more just society, <laughs> you know, which I'm always like, all right, well, you know, what about something we can actually do? You know what I mean? Like, uh, um, but it's a great book. Um, he interviews a lot of the sort of, you know, Google and Facebook uh, engineers um, who have designed all this stuff. And, you know, there's a great moment where. Um, a bunch of Google engineers are in a room and one guy at the front of the room, they're like talking about whether or not what they're making is ethical. And someone asked this room of engineers, like, would any of you like to live in the world that we're making? And nobody raises their hand. Um, so, you know, it's a great book that's about, you know, the addictive quality of all these apps and like what they're doing to us, what they're doing to us as a society and how they're doing it basically just to sell you fucking deodorant. You know, they've like completely decimated 
all of our attention spans and, uh, you know, uh, made the world really a worse place. Um, and it also is funny. It's like, you know, all we get, you know, out of out of this in the end is like little cartoon hearts. You know, that's all we're getting for like completely, you know, destroying our brains with all this shit. They know what they're doing to us. They're doing it to us on purpose, specifically. Um, I think this was a really interesting and eye opening book about, um, you know, social media. Well, Jack, you, you know, you've been talking about this issue with social media and this lack of focus. And Jack, have you ever considered transcendental meditation? Yes. You know, I, I have considered it, Leslie, and obviously a lot of really, um, you know, important and influential well, Jack, people. Before you say any more, I it. actually have, okay. you know, a clip that I want to show you from, a, from um, an organization sure. um, that was recently in contact with me with a uh, sure. struggle session, actually, you know, about oh, wow. potentially uh, sponsoring the show and, you know, having a little bit of a spawn con. And I just, why don't I just go ahead and play uh, this clip? Let's do it. Um, and just let you hear it, hear, you know, these thoughts about, you know, maybe a key to sure. getting back that focus. I've been meditating, uh, doing TM for about uh, a year now. And uh, so of they Of course, have- our. Um- I love daytime host so Ellen DeGeneres. I, I learned about it. Uh, Known for her Russell calm. Russell Simmons was on my Known show. Known for her calm. And uh, through Russell, uh, he told me about it. And then Russell Brand, it was a month. We had Russells on. All Russells all month long. It was a great. We were trying to give Oprah a run for her money. We had uh, Nipsey Russell. We had uh, Russell Crowe. And then a Jack Russell Terrier. So we were out of Russells. And then I. But anyway, so I learned how to meditate. Uh, I've tried to meditate before. And the, the breathing and the, all the other stuff that I, when I did yoga and I never, I was always opening my eye and it, it was like a minute later and I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? This is just impossible focusing on the breathing. And I just, and so when I learned about TM, which I'd heard about and it and TM, I'd heard Jack, so that's many the cool people, way to say it. I was, I was you very impressed by the people oh, yeah. that I, TM. I learned that they did TM and I was like, well, they're interesting people and it, it, there must be something to it. And I thought I'll try this, even though I'm not good at meditating and, and something about TM it is the only time I have that stillness. It's the only way I've ever been able to sit long enough that I, I open my eyes and I'm sad that it's 20 minutes later. I, I actually love, and I never had that feeling before, late at night alone at an ATM machine, but that was not safe. But, um, I don't understand that joke. I've listened to it three times. It but it does. It gives me this peaceful, peaceful feeling, and I, and I just love it so much, and I talk about it as much as I can on the show without sounding like I'm preaching about it. But hmm. um, I am here really to, uh, to – I can't say enough good things about it. And David Lynch, of course, is a, a, a genius in many ways, and what a wonderful man to start this foundation to help people. And, and you'll learn about that tonight. And – all the benefits that uh, that you can achieve from uh, from just sitting still and just going within. It just really is um, a, a beautiful now, experience. I do want to mention that this clip is from 2013. Um, okay. So you were asking, Jack, if the meditation helped her deal with the anger on the set. <laughs> According to the timeline, apparently it did not. Right. You know, Transcendental Meditation for me uh, has always struck me as just sort of Scientology light, you know, based on the celebrities who do it and the amount of money it costs. Well, My well, big Jack, question actually, with it uh, has Scientology been, light, I mean, you did, you, you were able to see the video. This, these videos are from something called the David Lynch Foundation, which is 
actually as creepy as, as you would you would guess a David Lynch foundation would be, but it's sure. is supposed to be trying to draw you into this world of transcendental meditation, but the video does look exactly like the Scientology videos, like the Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. like the the weird backgrounds with the, you know, with the phrases behind and the celebrities delivering these odd jokes that don't really make sense, but everybody laughs anyway. It's like the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to my mind, you know, meditation seems fine. I think a lot of, of people do it. Uh, I don't know how uh, much it needs to cost. Yes. <laughs> to sit around and sit still. You know, that's what's always struck me as strange about transcendental meditation is it seems like it's a lot of rich celebrities, a lot of very wealthy people who have figured out a way for it to cost a lot of money <laughs> to sit around and sit still. Um, and that's what's always struck me as strange about it. It's like meditation is something like, isn't the whole thing like monks do it, like Buddhists do it, and their whole thing is they like don't own anything? Like how is it that it suddenly needs to cost all of this money um, to, sit there and be well, quiet Jack, i have i have some news about the costs now david mm -hmm. lynch has launched a 500 million dollar transcendental meditation world peace initiative 500 million dollars wow, i'm in uh to train thirty thousand uh, international college students in transcendental meditation with the global union of scientists for peace jack i mean this just sounds mm. like really cool stuff going on this is one of this is one of these things where i'm like i don't need david lynch to be like smart well, <laughs> you know what i mean he's, like he's one of these guys where i'm not, like are, am i expecting like good politics out of david lynch no do i need do i need david lynch to like you know be a thought leader in my life he's no, kind I of a, he's um, almost he's in the himbo, himbo class with Zack snyder actually when like when yes, I, I, right, know, I pulled up I, an interview with that uh back in the day where someone tried to talk to him about politics because people know that he praised reagan but he praised reagan because he he said this multiple times because he cleared brush and look like a cowboy and my dad yeah. likes cowboys like that's the level of his politics like yeah. he says yes at one point he says i'm a libertarian because i don't like when people tell me i can't smoke like he's not like <laughs> right and then he was also like but is he's like but there isn't even a libertarian party i'm like you know honestly it takes a very specific brain to make the movies that uh david lynch has made and to make the tv that david lynch yeah. has made you know, and and that's not the brain that I'm like wanting to get my political theory yeah. from. You know what I mean? That's not and and it's not you know, not everyone has to be the brain that you get your political theory from. In fact, uh, most people shouldn't be. You know what yeah. I mean? Like most people literally he shouldn't even gets, be. He even gets uh, got kind of cross with the interviewer because the interviewer was trying to s derive some political message from the films, from the movie, saying like. Obviously, you know, you're making these these films about the rot of suburbia. Obviously, there's some political content. It's like, no, that has nothing to do with the movie at all. So David Lynch is like, I had a dream and I wrote it down <laughs> and then uh, and then we filmed it. I had a weird dream and I wanted to film it anyway. Yeah, I love this man. I, you know, honestly, I'm like, yeah. Maybe if he's into TM, you know, maybe I need to take out some loans. You know what oh, I mean? Maybe I need on. to take out a loan or two. Come on. All right. So I, ha I do have a clip of Jerry Seinfeld uh, giving his speech about TM. And I, Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen DeGeneres, a known abuser, Russell Simmons, 
serial rapist, Jerry Seinfeld, who is not a horrible person, but like a miserable person. Like he generally, yeah. like if you ask him, he always like his, like in he's always talks about how every time he goes up to his uh, penthouse, he thinks about jumping off and like his general disdain for humanity, which really bleeds through in everything he does. I is it, shocking to me that like you would put him on and say, oh, yes, this is uh, our spokesperson for our method of living a calm and healthy and better life. Jerry Seinfeld. I think what TMP, the TM stuff is like it's for successful people. They're like Seinfeld successful. So we want to get him up there. So I want to talk to you about TM, which I have now been doing um, 41 years. Wow. 40, 41 years. I don't remember exactly how I started. Um, it was a, some kid I knew. I had just gone to college, and, uh, you know, we were still kind of in the flush of the feeling of the 60s, and I just wanted to try any new thing that I heard about. And uh, so I went, and I, and I learned TM. And I do remember the very first time I did it, night. Because I never felt that good before, and I had terrible acne. I was, I think, I was you tried drugs, and yes. it, it, just, it all just went away, and uh, and I became a world famous comedian. That's my story. And you had to mention the shots story. of the crowd are and so surreal. January, they are Bob like Roth, Twin Peaks shots. Yeah, very weird. Who everybody loves. He taught my kids TM. And so one day we were standing in my kitchen. He was just mentioning the guy who I was, wrote I don't the book. About something that like, I was doing. And, he says, you and know, when you, really you look up the guy, he is just like another Elrond. He's just like another Elrond. 41 years in, I find out I'm not doing it right. Oh, well. That's the tragic part of the story. Maybe that should oh. make you think something. <laughs> so now I do the morning one. And now, okay, so my life now, which is, you know, I apologize. I don't like to take up too much time but he's so weird trying to talk Strange about guy. Strange why guy. this thing is making his life better because usually he's talking about how miserable his life is like every single time he's on stage and so the one time he has to say oh yes this thing is great this is big well he struggles with it but very very uh strange uh stuff but i hope something like he does honestly i'm a little bit disappointed that david lynch has had this thing for like 10 years and we haven't heard anything about it we haven't heard any scandals none of these people have been on real housewives like if you are going to have a celebrity cult you have to give a celebrity cult gossip. And I'm very yeah. disappointed in David Lynch and not providing any of that content. Yeah. You know, David Lynch, you know, needs to step up with this. We need to step up. We need the doc. We need the Nixium documentary about this. Come on. What's going on? All right, folks. That was struggle session. Have a good one. Peace. Later. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? 
Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.